God in heaven, we give you praise and glory, and we ask now for your help. Give us eyes that can see your glory. Give us ears to hear the truth of your word. Give us a heart that is open and humble. We pray that you would fill our hearts with faith. Sustain us, Lord, by your promises, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As the book of Genesis unfolds, the theme of the promise becomes the steady drumbeat, chapter after chapter, generation after generation. And anticipation has been building, anticipation for God to fulfill that promise. In Genesis chapter 12, God called a man named Abraham and his wife, Sarah, and he promised to bless them, to give them children, to make a great nation of them, and to bless all the families of the earth through them. And that promise was repeated in chapter 13, confirmed in chapter 15, uh, cemented into a covenant, and then in chapter 17, and confirmed once again in chapter 18. Again and again and again, we see that this promise is the focus. Why is there so much emphasis on this promise? If you've been with us throughout our study of Genesis, you might say, okay, okay, I've got it. Every chapter, we keep going back to this promise to Abraham and his family. Well, here's why that promise is so important. It is through this promise that God's plan for redemption will be accomplished. And what this means is that the history of mankind and the salvation of people from every tribe, tongue, kingdom, and nation depends on the fulfillment of this promise. The storyline not only of Genesis, but really the whole Bible traces the fulfillment of this promise. And we need to pay attention to this. It is God's faithfulness to this promise that reveals his character, which leads us to worship. It is, it is believing in the God of promise, this God, that brings salvation for us, leading to eternal life. And it is remembering God's faithfulness to his promise that strengthens our faith and leads to spiritual maturity and confident obedience. We need to see this promise and see the fulfillment of it. In Genesis chapter 21, we see the faithfulness of God to his promise displayed in three different scenes. There's sort of three different scenes in this chapter that we'll look at, and each one has something valuable to teach us. If you follow along with me, I'm going to read, first of all, from verses 1 through 7. It says, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. This first scene, verses 1 through 7, we find the promised miracle performed. God performs the miracle as he had promised. The birth of a son here highlights the faithfulness of God. Only God could have predicted and promised and delivered a miraculous birth of a son like this. We see that God's faithfulness to his promise, first of all, displays his power in verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Whenever the scriptures tell us that God visited someone, it usually carries either one of two, sent, 
two senses. It either carries with it the sense of judgment, that God visited judgment upon them, or the sense of salvation, that God visited them and and brought with him salvation, deliverance, rescue. And here God visits Sarah, bringing deliverance for them, deliverance from barrenness, rescue from their shame, provision of an heir, the child of promise, hope for the future. God visits them, and it is the Lord emphatically, Moses tells us, the Lord did it. It's not some random chance of nature. It's not some magic spell that Abraham and Sarah cooked up. It's not through pursuing the medical help of some doctor for this elderly woman who is well past the childbearing years, who's been barren all her life. No, God does it. It is his presence that creates new life in her womb. What a display of power. God in his faithfulness powerfully fulfills his promise. And a 90-year-old woman who'd been barren her whole life, age and infertility will not limit God's power. We see his faithfulness displayed. We see, secondly, that God's faithfulness to his promise upholds his word. Notice the triple repetition. It says that God visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham, a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken. Three times we are are reminded that this is the word of God. God is staying true to his word. Though they had waited for decades, God did exactly what he promised at exactly the time at which he promised he would do it. A year earlier, he'd said, at this time next year, Sarah, your wife, will bear a son. God's faithfulness to his promise upholds his word. You see, God can be trusted. When he speaks, when he gives us great and precious promises, we can be confident that he will do exactly as he says. And he will do all that he says. And he will do it in the way and at the time that he says. As John Calvin once wrote, commenting on this text, he never feeds men with empty promises. God never lies. He never writes checks that he can't cash. God is faithful to his word. And how does Abraham respond to God's faithful fulfillment of his promise? The way we all ought to respond, he obeys. God's faithfulness to his promise, as we see in verses 3 and 4, encourages obedience. Abraham names the child Isaac. God had told them to do this. He had appeared to Abraham and to Sarah and said, you'll have a son. And they had laughed. He said, seriously? Us, we're old, and we're well beyond the childbearing years, and Sarah's barren, and she always has been. We are going to bear a son, and God said, yes, you are, and you're going to name him Isaac, which means laughter. God will have the last laugh, and Abraham remembers God's instruction and names him Isaac, laughter. And Abraham not only names him what he's supposed to name him, but he secondly circumcises Isaac as God had commanded. He marks him out as recipient of the covenant promises. Abraham had been commanded to walk in holiness, to obey God, to circumcise himself and his family and those with him, to signify that, yes, God, we believe in your promises and we are part of this covenant people, this new community that you are creating by your promise. We will be distinct from the world, set apart to your promises. We will obey you. God's faithfulness to the promise encourages obedience and the naming and circumcision of Isaac. This is how Abraham responds, but what about Sarah? How does she respond? Well, she responds with joy. As you can imagine, 
this old woman who had longed for a child, who'd been promised this miraculous, this miraculous son, who had waited and waited and waited, finally gives birth to a son. God's faithfulness to his promise produces joy for his people, doesn't it? Those of you who have seen the faithfulness of God in your life, who have tasted God's goodness, you know that when God keeps his promises, when he provides for you as he says he will, when he comforts you as he says he will, when he leads and guides and protects you as he says he will, it brings joy. It brings joy. Sarah breaks out into song, a poetic play on Isaac's name, which means laughter. She says in verse 6, God has made laughter for me. She's made Isaac. He has made Isaac for me. And everyone who hears will laugh over me. She said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? It's a rhetorical question, calling us to marvel and rejoice in God's grace and God's power. She says, yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The shameful laughter of skepticism and unbelief had been turned into grateful joy. And her rhetorical question invites all of us to marvel at the grace and power of God, the one who has kept his promise and given her Isaac. And she laughs and rejoices. You see, God keeps his promise even when circumstances are impossible, doesn't he? That's true in their life and in ours as well. Though Sarah was barren, though she had been taken on two separate occasions away from Abraham and taken into the harem of some ruler, some king, two different occasions, God has rescued her, God has given Abraham a son through her, not by adoption, not by surrogacy, but her own son. And Abraham and Sarah are moved to obedience and overwhelmed with joy because God has been faithful. God has been faithful. So what we see in the first scene, the promised miracle performed. God is faithful. But then the, sh- the scene shifts forward to the time of Isaac being weaned, likely around the age of three in, in that society. Uh, they weaned Isaac. We see this in verse uh, eight. The child grew and was weaned. And the promise here, we have to understand, was not just that Abraham and Sarah would have a son. The promise was more than that, that God would bring kings and nations through this son, according to verse 16 of chapter 18, that the land would be possessed by Abraham's son and his descendants. There's more to this promise. There would be ongoing blessing and prominence for the descendants of Abraham. So the birth of Isaac is only the beginning. It's only the beginning of God being faithful, God fulfilling his promise. And in verses 8 through 21, we see that this promise is protected. The chosen line is protected. I want to read verses 8 through 14. Here we see the scene shifting. The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. This is the continuation of Sarah and Abraham's joy. But... Here comes the drama. Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. We'll stop right there. We have a joyful celebration here. In verse 8, I mean, think about it. Put yourself in Abraham and Sarah's sandals for a moment. When you're that old and you get pregnant, I mean, imagine nine months of holding your breath. Is this pregnancy going to make it full term? 
Or am I going to miscarry? Imagine the joy and rejoicing at finally the birth. And not only does the child survive the birth, but so does Sarah. I mean, childbirth was a dangerous, risky endeavor. They both survive. Not only that, but the infant mortality rate was high in that day and age. So for this newborn baby to survive, for Sarah to survive, and then for him to make it to the age of three and to not succumb to sickness or exposure, for him to survive and make it to that more stable age, that was a cause for rejoicing. So they are celebrating. They have something to celebrate as he turns three. The child of promise is doing well. He's thriving. So they are rejoicing. It's a cause for celebration. And him being weaned is taking an important step, and so they celebrate. But the joy of their celebration quickly gives way to some tension. How many of you guys have been to a family event, a family gathering, and everything's going great, and everything is happy, and everyone's rejoicing, and then there's a little bit of conflict? That's never happened to you, right? Okay, so maybe we can identify with Abraham and Sarah. We see that this is caused, first of all, by Ishmael's actions and then by Sarah's response to it. In verse 9, Sarah sees Ishmael literally Isaacing, laughing. But it's not the laughter of joy. Ishmael is not celebrating this heir. Keep in mind, Ishmael, before this, had been the only son of Abraham. He was the son of Abraham, not through Sarah, his wife, but through the servant of Sarah, Hagar. You remember a few chapters back, uh, Sarah had, had schemed and said, maybe God is going to provide this way. Why don't you take my servant as your wife? Have children with her and, and we will have a son, we'll have an heir. And Abraham listened to her bad counsel, and he compromised. He didn't wait on the Lord and had this son, Ishmael. And Ishmael had been the one who was ready to inherit everything that was Abraham's. And now that's all being taken away from him and giving to this newcomer, to Isaac. You can imagine, imagine Ishmael's attitude towards this new son. So it's not the laughter of joy. This is an intensive form of that verb, which, from which Isaac names come, and it's an antagonistic word. The NIV, if you have uh, the NIV in your lap, rightly translate this as mocking. It's a kind of laughter that scorns. Ishmael, the son of Hagar, was Isaacing Isaac, and not in a positive sense. Galatians chapter 4.29, Paul tells us that he is persecuting him. He's persecuting him. This is negative. And Sarah sees it, and she doesn't react well, just like many of you mothers if you're at the playground and some kid is picking on your kid, the mama bear claws come out, don't they? Well, Sarah does not like what she sees. She's filled with jealousy, and not just jealousy, not just frustration. She perceives Ishmael as a competitor, someone who perhaps could take away the inheritance of her son. More than that, she perhaps even sees Ishmael as a physical threat to the safety of her son. And she didn't want any accidents along the way that might threaten the physical well-being of her son, Isaac. Sarah has no love for Ishmael or Hagar. We've seen that before. She mistreated them so poorly that they fled and ran away a few chapters back, and God is the one who sent them back to the family. So Sarah will not tolerate a rival for her son, Isaac. Once again, here we have family drama, consequences of Abraham's compromise years earlier. He's sown, and now he's reaping some of the unfortunate consequences of his earlier sin. So she tells Abraham, cast out this slave woman, verse 10, with her son. She doesn't even use her name. She doesn't say Hagar and Ishmael. This slave woman, you can sense her disdain, with her son. She doesn't even name Ishmael. 
For the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son, Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. Abraham is in turmoil. What started off as a celebration is now turned into conflict. Ishmael and Sarah have ruined the party. And Abraham is very displeased, not just mildly annoyed. He is greatly distressed over this, as you can imagine. He doesn't share Sarah's animosity. He loves his son Ishmael. And her suggestion is unjust to cast them out. For 16 years, Abraham has loved and raised Ishmael. He doesn't want to send him away. But then God speaks in verses 12 through 13. And God says to Abraham, verse 12, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning took a bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. God tells Abraham not to go with his gut. Don't follow your feelings on this. Instead, God instructs Abraham, surprisingly, does it surprise you to read this, to actually go along with the counsel of his wife, even though last time that got him in big trouble. What happened last time he followed Sarah's advice? It caused a lot of problems. But God said, listen, don't go with your feelings on this. Don't be displeased. I want you to follow her counsel. Even though last time that got you in trouble, and even though, get this, even though her motives aren't right, Sarah is not appearing very noble or honorable in this text. We should not follow her example, okay, with the way she's treating other people. But God is able to use this to accomplish his will. Just as Joseph would later say to his brothers, What you meant for evil, God meant for good. So God is going to use even Sarah's unrighteous attitude and her scorn for Hagar and Ishmael. God's going to use that to accomplish his purposes. But Abraham, to follow God's instruction, to take the counsel of his wife, he's going to have to trust God's faithfulness. But God gives him something to hold on to. Even though it seems unjust, God reveals that the outcome, Ishmael and Hagar being separated from the family of promise, that's actually God's desire. Last time that Hagar and Ishmael had, been sent, had, had fled the family, God had sent them back. But this time, God wants them to depart. Why? Well, there's reasons. First of all, this is a partial fulfillment of chapter 12, verse 3. Whoever blesses you, I will bless. But whoever dishonors you, him I will curse. Isaac, or Ishmael rather had opposed the child of promise, scorned him, mocked him, perhaps threatened him, or even harmed him. And that brought consequences. But, but there's a second reason here. Ishmael is the son of fear. He represents compromise. Abraham's efforts to reach for what God promised, but not in the way that God promised to provide it. God says, listen, I'm gonna take away plan B. And I want you to renounce all of your efforts to accomplish this in your power, through your schemes and your wisdom, your manipulations. I want you to trust me fully and completely. I want you to put all your eggs in one basket, that one basket named Isaac. God's covenant plan would move forward, not through Ishmael, but through Isaac. So even though Sarah's heart is in the wrong place, Ishmael must go. But he gives comfort and something for Abraham to trust in. By God's grace, he also has plans to bless Ishmael. God is going to preserve him. 
He will not die in the wilderness. God is going to make a great nation of Ishmael, not the chosen nation, not the the covenant people of God, but a great nation nonetheless. Because just as God had promised to curse those who curse you, he had also promised through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And he said that I will bless Ishmael, your son, because of you, Abraham, because of you. God is going to bless Ishmael. So Abraham has something to hold on to, and he needs to follow this counsel that Sarah gives him. In sending Ishmael away, Abraham must trust God's faithfulness. He has to trust God with his wife, Hagar. He has to trust God with his son, Ishmael, and he's going to have to trust God to fulfill his promises through this three-year-old little boy, Isaac, with no plan B, no backup plan. He must rely fully on God's promise. And so Abraham, although it's painful, obeys. He provides them with minimal supplies, bread and a skin of water. And you can almost see his hesitation and how hard this is for him because last of all, after giving Hagar, after loading her up, you even see his care. He's not saying, get out of here. He's helping her, providing for what she needs. And then last of all, he turns over, he, he turns over the care and, and the the possession of his son, Ishmael, to her. He says, you now take the child and go. This is the abandonment of plan B. It's the divorce of a wife wrongly taken. And it's the clearing of the path for Isaac to be the only son. And you know what? This is even a foreshadowing of the test that will come next. Because if Abraham can't say goodbye to Ishmael, He won't be ready for the test that comes when God says, I want you to take your only son, Isaac, and offer him to me on the altar. So this is a test for Abraham. So what happens to Hagar and Ishmael? Well, they depart, and they wander in the wilderness of Beersheba. But what happens then? What happens to them? We read in verses 15 through 21 that God cares for them. When the water in the skin was gone... She put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. They are lost. They are out of water. And they are feeling the physical approach of death, thirsting to death. And Hagar can't bear to watch her son die. She knows it's going to happen. She leaves him behind under a bush. And she goes far enough away where she can't hear his cries, but close enough where she can still see, about the distance of a bow shot. And she lifts up her voice and weeps. But God, once again, shows care for those who have been discarded, those who are vulnerable, those who are forgotten, those who feel alone, Those who feel cast off, he is faithful to his promise. Though God's covenant purposes will continue through Isaac, that does not mean that he has no care for Hagar and her son. When they reach the brink of death from thirst, God steps in. It says in verse 17, and God heard the voice of the boy. God heard him. Now, Ishmael is nowhere named in this whole chapter. He's called the boy, the child, the lad. But his name is Ishmael, and you remember when he was born that his name means the God who hears. And we see in verse 17 that God heard the voice of the boy. 
His name was prophetic. Just as God had heard and cared for them the first time when they fled Abraham and Sarah, God hears once again. He hears the weeping of Hagar, and more than that, he hears the prayers of Ishmael. Apparently, the faith of Abraham had been passed on to his son Ishmael in some sense, even if the covenant promise had not. God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not. For God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy. And he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. God is the God who hears. And he speaks to Hagar and gives her a promise that her son would become a great nation. Now, perhaps she had never heard this. God had communicated this to Abraham that he'd be a great nation. But this specific detail perhaps was new for Hagar. God gives her a promise that Ishmael would be blessed for Abraham's sake. But not only does God give them a promise for the future, he also provides for their need in the present. He opens her eyes to a well of water. He meets their need, and it says that God is with them. God is with them to meet their needs and to fulfill his promise. And they not only survive, they thrive. Ishmael becomes an expert with the bow. They thrive. Life in the wilderness is hard, but this guy makes it. Just as the prophecy to Hagar when he was a baby, he is a wild donkey of a man. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, but he doesn't ma- it doesn't matter to him. He's able to handle that kind of life, that kind of lifestyle. And he makes it to full maturity of adulthood. And he takes a wife, his his mother rather, takes a wife for him from the place she was originally from, from the land of Egypt. And the makings are underway for Ishmael to become a great nation. And this sort of wraps up the story of Ishmael. They've been dismissed from the main stage, but not discarded. God is faithful. Once again, the faithfulness of God is on display. That God keeps his promises even when he asks us to do things that are hard. God keeps his promises even when things don't make immediate sense. Send him away into the wilderness. God keeps his promises and fulfills his purposes even when other people sin against us. Even when there's there's impure motives and attitudes involved God is able to even use those things to further his plans, and he is faithful to provide, even when we have nothing left. The wilderness is no threat to God. Sarah's wrong attitudes don't get in the way of his plans. God is able to use all of this to display his glory and to further his purposes. God is faithful to not only give Abraham and Sarah Isaac, but God is faithful to preserve Ishmael. But Moses is not done here telling us about God's faithfulness to his promise. So Ishmael and Hagar are now off the scene. We won't hear from them again in the book of Genesis. But now the scene shifts back. The camera sort of pans back again to the family of promise. Now we have Abraham and Sarah and Isaac. No more Hagar, no more Ishmael. And we see in verses 22 through 34 the provision of the land. The provision of the land. Verse 22, it says, At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, 
But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. The previous two scenes have focused on the promise of offspring, but this scene focuses on the other elements of God's promise, the elements of land and blessing. You remember Abimelech? We met him last week. Uh, he is the, the chieftain of, of these people who would later become the Philistines in the region of Gerar. And Abimelech had seen Sarah and taken her as his wife because Abraham said, she's my sister. He thought she was available. It all turns out that she wasn't. Um, And Abraham and Abimelech are on good terms. Abimelech had said, here's your wife back and here's a bunch of sheep and camels. Graze wherever you want. I, I, I want to be connected with you. You have my blessing. So they were dwelling in the same area. Now, Abimelech, this king, he recognizes the hand of God is upon Abraham. And we've seen that throughout Genesis I mean, Abraham goes to war against these invading armies that were undefeated against everybody else, and Abraham and his servants drive them out. He had seen what happened when he had taken Sarah. All of of Abimelech's wives and servants, they were barren. They couldn't bear children. But when Abraham prayed for him, all of a sudden they are fruitful again. He knew that God was with Abraham, and he saw Abraham's growing wealth and influence. He says, God is with you. We see this phrase again and again throughout the rest of Genesis. He would later be with Isaac and with Jacob and with Joseph. And Abimelech recognizes this and he says, hey, I want to enter into a treaty with you. I want to be on your team. And he says, no falsehood this time. Do not deal falsely with me. He says, you lied to me before and it got me into trouble. I want you to be on the up and up. No falsehood this time. And Abraham's interested in a treaty, verse 24, but his answer is pretty short. You know, Abimelech makes this big offer, and Abraham just says, I will swear. But he seems to be a little bit hesitant. He says, I will swear. But as we go on, we see that Abraham has a bone to pick first. Verse 25, when Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. You see, He had the word-of-mouth blessing from Abimelech already. The whole land is before you. Dwell anywhere you like. But that word-of-mouth promise had been followed up by real-life harassment. You see, access to the land was worthless without access to water. I mean, for a society like theirs, where Abraham was, had many people in his family, many people, uh, servants and employees, and he had all of these herds of camels and donkeys and sheep, if he didn't have water, they won't make it. And Abimelech's servants had seized a well that Abraham was using and had taken it. They were, he had conflict with some of Abimelech's servants. And this is a matter of life and death for a man like Abraham with flocks and many people. He says, sure, I'll make a covenant with you, but listen, we've got some issues to straighten out first because your people have been mistreating me and we need to get this squared away. And like the first time Abraham and Abimelech met to work out some problems. Abimelech says, listen, I'm innocent. I didn't know she was your wife, okay? That that whole issue wasn't my fault. And I haven't heard about this. I didn't know about it until you told me. This is not my fault. And Abraham is satisfied with his response and agrees to make the covenant with him. So Abraham, verse 27, took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. But Abraham's not done. He still wants to nail down this issue of the well and sort of get it in writing, so to speak. So Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what's the meaning of these seven ewe lambs? 
that you have set apart. The ewes were valuable. Uh, they were the ones that, um, they were lambs, so they were young, they had their whole life ahead of them, and they were female, so they would be the ones to breed and have more sheep. So that was a big investment, seven ewe lambs. Said, what's the meaning of this? This, on top of what we've already exchanged, what's the significance? And Abraham says in verse 30, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Listen, I want to get this in writing, that this well belongs to me, and you're going to sign off on it, right? That way we don't have this issue in the future that we've been having. And Abimelech agrees. Abraham says, let's nail this down and settle it officially. And so they make this transaction. And here's the point. You might say, why does, why does Moses bother recording this? Business dealings happened all the time for grazing and sheep and servants. Different things were going on all the time. But in this transaction, here's the big thing. Legal ownership of land in the promised land, in Canaan, was finally established. It's not just word of mouth permission. You see, what happens here is that a matter of conflict for Abraham, God had turned it into a resource and a blessing. Now he owns this well, and it's been signed off on. Everybody knows that this belongs to Abraham. He dug it. He has access to it. You see, God is faithful. The land that had been promised to Abraham and his descendants, they now finally have their first legal claim to ownership in the land. A son, blessing, land. God is faithful, isn't he? Faithful to his promise. And what's Abraham's response to all this? We see in verses 33 through 34. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Abraham's response to the faithfulness of God, I mean, he has a son now through Sarah, and he has land now, and God is blessing him and fulfilling his promises. So what does he do? He worships. He worships God, the everlasting God. This tree would be a memorial to God, the one who had provided him a son, who had established his lineage and legacy, and who had granted him his first share in the promised land. And this planting of the tree is not only a memorial to God, but it's also an expression of faith. Abraham expects to possess this particular land for a long time to come. Otherwise, why plant a tree? It takes years and years and years for a tree like this to grow big enough to provide the kind of shade and and the landmark that it was meant to be. But Abraham expects to be around for a while, and he expects for his children and grandchildren to be around for a while. So the planting of a tree is an investment. He's confident that this land will belong to them. It's an expression of his faith. And he knows that his children and his children's children will enjoy the shade of this tree and will celebrate its significance. This is the land God has given us, the everlasting God. It's an investment in a future promised by God and believed in by an expectant Abraham. You see, in all three scenes we've seen in this chapter, and we've covered a lot of ground this morning, but in all three of these scenes, we see God's faithfulness is proven, and all the while, we see that Abraham's faith is strengthened, isn't it? As he beholds the faithfulness of God, his faith is strengthened. God always keeps his promises, and Abraham is going to need to be confident in this, that God will keep his promises, because as the page turns, Into chapter 22, that faith will be tested as it's never been tested before. The ultimate test of his faith is about to come, and that's next week, so I'm not going to get into it. But Abraham here is having his faith strengthened. He's being prepared. He's being tested for this crucial moment 
in his life. Because soon Abraham will be asked to sacrifice it all by putting Isaac on the altar. But it's not just Abraham whose faith needs to be strengthened. It's your faith and my faith that needs to be strengthened today. We need to be confident that God always, always, always keeps his promises, even when circumstances seem impossible. Even when we're asked to do things that are hard, that are emotionally difficult, things that don't make sense, even when we face opposition from others, and it feels like everything is always uphill, we need to be confident that God keeps his promises. Psalm 36.5, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens your faithfulness to the clouds. It's not a little bit of faithfulness. It's a lot a bit of faithfulness. It stretches to the clouds. Psalm 119.90 says, your faithfulness endures to all generations. God is not only faithful to Abraham, he's faithful to you, and he's faithful to me. This is who our God is. You might say this morning, well, God hasn't promised me a son. I mean, maybe you're getting close to 90, and you say, I don't think I'm going to have any kids anymore. Listen, God has actually promised you something better. The promises of the Old Testament all anticipate and point to and set us up for the ultimate promise. The promise of eternal life, it all points to Jesus, it points to Christ. And all of God's promises, the scriptures tell us, find their yes in him. 1 John 2, 25 says, and this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life, eternal life. Eternal life that would come through Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We look to Jesus for all the fulfillment of God's promises. We look to him in faith because it's in Jesus that God's plans to rescue and to save and to redeem and to bless, it's in Jesus that these promises come true for us. And it is through union with Jesus, through trusting in him, that we come to receive these Great and precious promises. Second Peter 1.3, Peter writes about God. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, that's union with Christ, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. These great and precious promises are ours through faith in Christ. As we're united with him, we have life. We have resurrection. We have forgiveness. We have a heavenly Father who will never leave us or forsake us. We have the Holy Spirit who dwells within us to supply power and strength and comfort. And we have an advocate and redeemer and a savior and a mediator and a substitute whose name is Jesus who suffered, died, and rose again for you and for me and who now sits at the right hand of the Father. All this is ours, these great and precious promises because God has done exactly what he said he would do. God always keeps his promises, and this is good news for you and me because salvation depends on the faithfulness of God to these promises. So believe 
in the promise. Rejoice in these precious promises and proclaim to all the faithful mercy of the God who promised and delivered salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. You see, God is faithful to save, amen? And he is faithful to protect us, isn't he? Faithful to provide for us, faithful to forgive us when we sin, faithful to sustain us when we are weak, faithful to comfort us when we are hurting. But let me tell you that your faith is going to be tested at this very point. You will face a situation. Many of you already have, and many of you are smack dab in the middle of it right now. Many of you will face a situation where you are going to be tempted to not believe that God will keep his promise. I probably said it 87 times this morning. God keeps his promises. God's faithful. And we all nod and say, amen, amen. But we are going to come face to face with a situation in which we will be tempted to listen to the whispers of the enemy who says, God will not keep his promise. He'll forget you. He doesn't love you that much. He's not able to overcome this. God changed his mind. Maybe he was really not that committed. Maybe this is true for other people, but not for you. His promises are too good to be true. That's just too much. You can't really expect God to do all that. Your faith is going to be tested. For many of you, it has been. For some of you, it is this morning being tested. You'll be tempted to not believe that God keeps his promises. The Puritan Samuel Clark said this. J.I. Packer quotes it in his book on knowing God, but Samuel Clark says this, Christians deprive themselves of their most solid comforts by their unbelief and forgetfulness of God's promises. I want to read that again. Christians deprive themselves of their most solid comforts by their unbelief and forgetfulness of God's promises. Let me ask, does that describe you this morning? Are you depriving yourself of the most solid, most real, most meaningful comfort because of your unbelief or your forgetfulness of God's promises? If that's you this morning, let me exhort you with the words of Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. He is faithful. God is faithful. Hold on to that. Don't let go. God always keeps his promises. Let's believe in this. Believe in God's promises to you this morning. Rest in his promises. Rejoice in his promises. And let's proclaim the faithfulness of God to the world Tell them that our God is the one who makes and keeps his promises. Maybe we're not going to plant a tamarisk tree as a monument. But with our words and with our worship and by our witness, the world needs to know that our God is the everlasting God who makes and keeps his promises. And because of who our God is, we can sing, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus.'" just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus says the Lord.
God, we are humbled and comforted this morning to think that we can trust you, that you are good, that you are faithful, and that you always do what you say you will do. And all we have to do is look to Jesus to be reminded. As the angel said outside the empty tomb, he is not here, he is risen as he said. If Jesus is not risen, we are of all people to be most pitied because that means you don't keep your promises. But he is raised. Because of that, we have hope. All of your promises are yes, Father, in him, in Jesus. God, strengthen our faith this morning. Strengthen us by your spirit that we might be able to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. We are declaring this morning that God keeps his promises, that you are faithful. Lord, help us to hold fast, strengthen our weak faith and our weak hands so that we will not waver because you are faithful. You are faithful. We praise you and thank you and ask that this truth would sustain us and encourage us this morning. And Lord, if there's any here who don't know you, we pray that today... They would come to believe in your promise of eternal life. They would trust in Jesus to forgive their sin, to make them new, and to welcome them into your family. Amen.